Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the early family, as well as a welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on African-American research in Virginia, challenges, what works, successes, why is it important, how Montpelier's African-American Heritage Project differs from other plantations, and how it relates to the ongoing discussions about the Constitution. My guests are Zan Nelson and Elizabeth Chu. Zan Nelson is an award-winning freelance writer specializing in African-American historical investigations. She is the former president of the preservation nonprofit organization Friends of Wilderness Battlefield Incorporated. The current president of History Quest, co-founder of the African American Heritage Alliance, and is currently the consultant for the African Americans of the Mount Pelier Community Project. Elizabeth Chu is Vice President for Museum Programs at James Madison's Montpelier. She has worked in the museum field for 30 years, focusing on the interpretation of women's and African-American history. At Monticello, where she was the curator for 13 years, she co-organized with Rex Ellis the exhibition Slavery at Jefferson's Monticello, Paradox of Liberty, for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. At Mount Pelier, she oversees the documentary and archaeological research into the identities and stories of the enslaved people on the plantation. So let me give a warm welcome to Zan Nelson and Elizabeth Chu to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. Thanks, Bernice. Thank you, Bernice. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you. So before we even talk about your current project, Zan, tell us why you seem so passionate about African-American history. Well, I don't think there's just one answer, Bernice, but I will do the best I can. Um, I was raised on a farm adjacent to an absolutely wonderful, very family-oriented black community. And I learned very early on from from my parents uh, to respect that culture and the heritage and the humanity. Um, and to recognize people for their character, not the, their race or their religion or their economic status. However, when I became an adult, 
I learned very quickly that that wasn't necessarily the way everybody thought. And I thought, well, I wonder what's missing here. What? Why am I thinking this and others aren't? And what I came down to is that, that there's just a real lack of information. So, I mean, you could say I'm out here to eradicate ignorance, and that's not <laughs> meant disrespectfully, but ignorance in its true definition is simply a, a lack of knowing every all the ins and outs. The other part of that is um, is that our our American history has not been fully told um, because it hasn't included the history of the African American community, and so my little part in all of that can be done um, with the simple commitment to the the kind of hard work it takes to eke out those those new facts, if you will, and then and then tell it. And I will say this, in fact, it's not just hearsay, okay? It's yeah, the facts are extremely important. Um I'll I'll paraphrase a little a little slogan. I don't like to tell any story before it's time. <laughs> right. So the facts are important. Facts are critical. Oh, critical, yes. They are critical. So uh, can you share with us some of the the tools and information that you found most useful in kind of eking out and getting those facts uh, identified and those facts told? I can. Um the 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 thing that that is people need to understand, and I have a feeling that the audience uh, probably already knows this. Researching African American history is is quite different than researching uh, the history of those who were always in the majority, because there were there was documentation, there were records kept. There was, um, you know, you can go to the courthouse and look up this, that, and the other. That's not so true for most minorities, but particularly for African-American history. So I can talk about some of the tools, and then I'm going to talk about a couple of things that are very important uh, in relationship to those tools. But um Certainly, you. I mean, there's a vast amount of information that's available now that wasn't available 20 years ago because of the Internet. And a lot of the repositories have uh, digitized many of their files, and you can do a lot of looking online with many of the sites that people are familiar with, Ancestry.com, Family Search, Newspaper Archives, then you you've got the repositories that have not yet digitized their files whether for example in Virginia there's a vast amount of information at the state library of Virginia and I've been using a lot of those records and I'm going to elaborate on that because they're so important uh birth records that start about in in 1853 and go forward that's important because those are birth records for enslaved people. Uh, death records, marriage records, the personal property tax records, uh, for uh, particularly for Virginia, they break them down by county, um, and they can tell where a person is living at any given time. Um, and then newly, we have, uh, by family search, we're getting a lot of the Freedmen's Bureau records online. So those are all extremely important for for learning, getting more information about African Americans, uh, particularly before emancipation. Um, but I I want to I want to say that it's not. It's it's more than just looking at documents. You need to begin to 
do some cross-referencing and some analyzing of those documents. And I have examples that I can give from some things that I've been working on with Montpelier. I don't know whether I should should kind of do that now or wait. Uh, well, no, I don't. Later. I don't want you to go into it just just yet, because I, I want to put a context of some of the information that you're talking about. Because you're talking about Virginia, but you're also in a specific area of Virginia. So tell us about uh, Orange County. Well, I'm going to Orange County. Um, it's in the Piedmont region of Virginia, as as most people know. But I think what's important for researchers to understand is you need to look not just in the county where you believe your ancestors were, but in the surrounding counties, because there was a lot of movement. And in our case, we're looking at Madison County, Louisa County, Culpeper County, and a portion of Albemarle County. If we're trying to take someone who was, say, living uh, enslaved or as a free person of color uh, from the early 1800s to trying to find living descendants, which is my primary uh, goal, uh, you you can't isolate yourself to one particular county. Mhm. Okay. And there's a comment coming out of the chat room uh basically saying knowing that Virginia records are held in different places at the county level is important as Virginia was a major gateway to the south. That is true. Um and um a lot of the counties have some very good records within their own, usually in their courthouses, sometimes in their libraries. But um, sometimes those counties have turned those records over to the state library. Um, the state library has many more records than most of the individual counties, and they're on they're accessible on microfilm. Mhm. Okay. And so, go ahead on. You were talking. You were going to tell us what you were working on now. Well, let me let me go back a second when you're talking about schools because, um, you know, I talked about uh, cross-referencing these different facts that you may gather or different databases and analyzing them. The other thing that's extremely, and I can't emphasize it enough, important about researching African-American history is getting outside those repositories and getting out from in front of the computer and doing what I oversimplify in calling field work. But the churches were extremely important after emancipation, and so finding the church where your ancestor may have worshipped is is integral to documenting who your ancestor was you may uh there were a lot of again this is after emancipation but it's immediately after emancipation you have african american settlements or communities and within those churches will crop up and there will be burial grounds and you talk to people, whether you go to the churches today in 2016 and you talk to some of the older members or you walk the neighborhoods with someone and you talk to older people, you're going to begin to get a sense of what and who lived where. And sometimes getting inside the head of your ancestor that way and that means you've got to learn what the history was during the time where they lived. What was it like in Orange County in 1840? What was going on? Um, I think that's all part and parcel with being able to decipher the kinds of information we get 
in looking um, for African-American ancestors. Right. Now, you know, when I started the show, I said that we would talk about uh, some of the challenges, but also what works. And so you've mentioned, of course, getting getting from in front of the computer and going into the field and and walking the neighborhood, which which makes a lot of sense because you do get a, a a good feel for what that community is like, especially if you are fortunate enough to find an elder, someone that can also tell you some of the history, what happened in the community, and what have you. But what else have you found that works? Well, let me let me tell you a little little tiny little story. I hope I can keep it tiny. It wasn't uh, during slavery, but it was shortly thereafter. And I would I would recommend people to um, get this whole story by googling uh, Pete Hill, uh, the baseball player. Um, in short, he had been inducted posthumously into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2006. They had his name as Joseph, nicknamed Pete Hill, and born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the the baseball, uh, I call them aficionados, they, they really know their their material. They said, that's not correct. And so the nephew ended up getting in touch with me and I spent about six months looking at the data that a lot of other people had collected. And we were able to to document that Pete Hill, actually his name was John Preston Hill, born in Culpeper County. And his family moved to Pittsburgh later. Um, but But I did that by, I had a very good friend who lived in the area where he lived, who would go with me, and we walked, it was at the base of a mountain, and we walked that mountain. We found a settlement in that mountain of uh, house. There was a house still there. There were foundations. There were hand-dug wells. We talked to people within the church where his mother would have attended. They were able to, there were a few elders who were able to confirm a lot of what we had theorized about. And we were so successful in finding not just one document, but in finding multiple facts, multiple resources. And that's really important, not just one resource. That the Baseball Hall of Fame reviewed all the material and determined that they had made an error. And they corrected it. They had a big day uh, there. It was Pete Hill Day, and all of Pete Hill's descendants were able to be there. They weren't there the first time he was inducted because they had his name wrong and his birthplace wrong. So none of them knew uh, that he was being inducted. And that that was very, very special. Not only did oh, we yes. eradicate a little ignorance that day but and correct some of the histories, but the families were just elated in making this connection, which I think is what drives a lot of us that are in this field. Right, right. Well, you know what? We're going to have to take a quick break because we've lost Elizabeth. And so I'm going to try to call her back. And while uh, I'm calling her back, I'm going to play a little music, everyone. And then, Zan, we're going to bring her back on, okay? That's great, because we don't want to miss her.
welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history <laughs> questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Zan Nelson share with us just some basic information on African-American research. And we now have Elizabeth on. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Bernice. Yes. Well, now there's a question before we go into just talking with you about what you're working on, Elizabeth. Are the counties in Virginia that you're speaking about specifically significant to the African-American community because of post-emancipation settlements? This is a question to you, uh, Zan. Okay, so um, what I can say about Orange, Madison, Culpeper, all those counties uh, that I uh, mentioned, they all had very, very high populations of enslaved people. Um, okay. Actually, more than 50%. So then after emancipation, many of those people were still, I mean, it was their home, they they were still in those counties, and yes, they would establish settlements. Um, I think it's it's if you think about what you know about Im- immigrants who come to this country, whether it's the Irish or Italian or Czechoslovakian, when they came to this country, they clustered into a community because. They had a common bond. They had common interests. They wanted to protect one another. They wanted to help one another start businesses or a school or get a job. And it was no different with the newly freed people. And so um, I find those communities not only a wealth of, of information, if you can eke it out, but they're fascinating Right, and so, I mean, you have been working in those communities, so give us an idea of what you're working on now. Okay, well, I I posted on my own Facebook that I have Zan's dream job. I am so excited about working with Montpelier uh, on this African-American communities project. Um, And my specific task is to try to identify and then connect with living descendants of those who were perhaps enslaved at Montpelier by the Madisons, at Montpelier post-Madison, or in the Orange County community because these plantations, even one as well-known as Montpelier, didn't exist in any kind of vacuum or as an island. So uh, both the white population and the enslaved population of those farms and plantations uh, communicated with one another, interacted, um, married, uh, if you will, people from cross plantations. So um, that's what I get to do. And it's like, it's hard to describe how fulfilling it is. It's very frustrating because you're you're often looking for a needle in a haystack. Um, But I've been doing this now for 25 years and I, I don't any longer give up when I hit a brick wall. I sometimes walk away uh, consult with someone else, give it time to settle in, and then it dawns on me, well, you didn't look there, or you didn't look there. The other part of my makes my job so wonderful. There's two other parts. One is that Montpelier is so completely committed 
to telling this story in a very comprehensive way. And secondly, they have a wonderful research staff that has collected vast amounts of information, and they know the history really well. So it's a great combination. Right. So, Elizabeth, why don't you tell us about what's going on at James Madison's Montpelier? Sure. Well, so Montpelier was obviously the plantation of the Madison family. So it was first established by President James Madison's grandfather. It's where President James Madison grew up, where he spent really – he came back to throughout his entire political career, through his years as Secretary of State, as as President, um, in his early years as the kind of father of the U.S. Constitution. He, he always came back to Montpelier. It's where he brought his famous wife, Dolly Madison. It's where he died, and it's where, over the course of three generations of Madison's, um, several hundred African Americans were also held in slavery. So Montpelier is different from some of the um, plantations that are now museums in that we have only been a museum since the 1990s. Um, Montpelier was actually um, had, a, had private owners until the very late 1980s, and so it only became a museum in the 1990s. But since 2000, we have been um, doing research, and we are absolutely committed, as Zan was saying, to telling a complete American story, because, of course, we understand that there would be no Montpelier, there would be no James Madison, there would be nothing to tell if it were not for the labor and the skill and the, the sweat and blood of the enslaved community who lived there as well. Um, uh, people who know anything about Montpelier might know the name of the most famous of the enslaved people who called Montpelier home, and that is a man named Paul Jennings. Um, Paul Jennings was born into slavery at Montpelier in 1799. Um, as, as a boy, he um, went to Washington, D.C. with the Madisons um, when Madison became president in 1809, and he served as a, as a valet and a body servant, um, the very important part of the running of the household for the Madisons, both in Washington and in, back home at Montpelier. He, um, he, li- he lived to become free. Um, after J- James Madison never freed any slave, but, but after James Madison died, Paul Jennings um, was able to earn his freedom through working with um, Daniel Webster, Senator Daniel Webster, who was a friend of the Madison family. And he um, became free, and he became part of a very important and vibrant free African-American community in Washington, D.C. He became a property owner, and he actually uh, wrote an autobiography. He wrote a reminiscence about his life, um, and um, he, there is a, a absolutely wonderful, important book about him that came out in 2000 and I think it was t- 2008, written by Elizabeth Dowling Taylor called A Slave in the White House. Um, so many people have heard about Paul Jennings, but there are, there are many, many, many other people who lived in slavery at Montpelier, and their, their, their stories are more difficult to unearthed because they didn't they didn't publish autobiographies so we've been working really now for for for, we've been working for 16 years to to you know to create a more complete picture of people who did live in slavery at Montpelier and we're we're um now really accelerating our efforts both to to understand who the who the enslaved community was um we're also working uh we use archaeology um to study slavery. We're working particularly now on an area that's just adjacent to the Montpelier house that we call the South Yard, where there were slave dwellings and work buildings. We're, we're excavating those and we are reconstructing them to give a, 
better picture to our visitors of what the actual landscape looks like, the, the complete landscape. And we're also working on a major exhibition on slavery and slavery at Montpelier that will open um, in the spring of 2017. So we, ha- we have a number of, of um, initiatives going on all at the same time. Well, you Elizabeth. mentioned that there were a little bit more than 100 um, uh, enslaved individuals at Montpelier. Do you have uh, the list and the names of all the people that live there, I mean work there? We, we have been working. We, there is no written document that gives all the names, but we have been working to piece together as many names as we can. Um, and so we – we do at this point have about um, I think we have over, we have over a hundred names of about three hundred people that we believe lived in slavery at Montpelier. Um, and where did you find those names? I beg your pardon. Where did you find the names? Oh, so it's a it's a combination of um, records. So plantation or farm records kept by the Madisons, family correspondence, some of there there are members of the enslaved community who were literate who we so we have letters that they wrote to to uh, Dolly and James Madison um, through um, sort of as as wide a variety of documentary sources as we can and then we can we can um Sometimes names were mentioned in wills, and then we can also begin to follow people through the censuses, and that's what mm-hmm. Zan, that's what Zan's very good. That's what Zan knows how to do. I am not I'm not a genealogist myself, but but I'm very lucky to work with people that are that are good at that. Yes, yes. And so Zan, uh, you you have been looking through the census to find uh, the individuals. Well, looking through a lot of different places, um, I want to go back to something um, before we get into that, if I'm if I may, because sure. Elizabeth brought brought up um, Paul Jennings, and I think he's a real good example of how the community was so interconnected. Paul Jennings and Elizabeth, you can tell this. Paul Jennings had a wife and several children who were not on the Montpelier plantation. Right. They they lived at a plantation called Woodley that was owned by a relative of the Madisons that was adjacent to Montpelier. But so so it was very typical, as many listeners probably know, for slaves and this is the term they used in the eighteenth century or nineteenth century, for slaves to quote, marry abroad, which meant to marry on a different plantation. So Paul Jennings um, and his wife Fanny had um, had four or five children, and so Paul only saw them on Sundays when he would walk from Montpelier to Woodley to to be with his family. And then later, in, later he was able to free his children. His wife had already died by that time. Mm-hmm. But there was but it's interesting because I, I've never heard the term "marry abroad," marry meaning abroad. You're, mm-hmm. you're going to the next plantation. Plantation. Mm-hmm. 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 Zan, well, you the, were saying. Yeah, Bernice. The other thing about Paul Jennings that I think uh, is important in understanding this is again getting sort of inside the head of your ancestor. Uh, Paul Jennings moved about a lot because he was so close to the president. Almost yes. everywhere the president went, Paul Jennings went. Would you say that's correct, Elizabeth? Uh, yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. And so he perhaps could, he corresponded when he was in Washington. He would get letters and he would write letters back to those that were in Orange County, who had stayed in Orange County, and you can assume that he brought news also uh, from the larger urban area. He brought news back to the folks at Montpelier, and I think this this has a lot to do with trying to determine 
for example, after uh, a, a couple uh, who had been enslaved at Montpelier and emancipation uh, finally came about, it is logical to look to see if you can't find them in Orange County, Let's go look to, in the District of Columbia because they knew people there. They knew other people like the Jennings family or the Ta- Taylor family who had been living in Washington, D.C. with Dolly Madison and had gotten their freedom. Again, you're going to most likely go where you know someone. Um, and that proved successful for us to mm-hmm. try and find and, an elderly couple. And that's a really good example of, you know, all of this, all of this is good examples of how, you know, a plantation in a very rural part of Virginia, this rural to this day, was by no means isolated in the early 19th century. It was only just kind of, a, you know, a part of a both a local regional and even a national network um, where enslaved people traveled and then sent news or got word, you know, back and forth between their, their friends and family. So that, so that, you know, an enslaved individual on a plantation in Virginia could have connections even sort of up and down the Eastern seaboard, which, which I think a lot of people are surprised to learn today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, it's tell a, us more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, uh, Bernice, I would love to tell you about one, just one family that we've been searching for. We want to find a living descendant or multiple living descendants of this this family. We We have documentation that they were um, owned by the Madisons. Uh, it was a, a man named Abraham Shepherd, And because we looked at some census records as of 1870, we know he was married in 1870. He was uh, married to a woman by the name of Nancy. So we go back in the records and we see... we. We build, if you will, a, a chain of, of title uh, when ownership was transferred. Did they move to another place? So when James Madison, the president, dies, uh, Abraham and another enslaved person by the name of Nancy were um, inherited uh, by Dolly. Dolly, in turn, later uh, bequeathed them to her son, John Payne Todd. And um, Elizabeth, step in here anytime when I do a date wrong. In 1840, no, 1852, John Payne Todd dies. He has written a will, and in that will he frees his slaves. Now, there were a set of slaves that had stayed with Dolly in Washington, and they petitioned the courts in Washington and and got their freedom. That's the Taylors were also looking for some living descendants of those folks. The the enslaved people who were still who remained in Orange, we lost track of a bit because John Payne Todd was in serious financial debt. So it was questionable whether the courts would have allowed him to, allowed his will to go forward and free all these people, which was his intention. Because he owed everybody, in his, oh, it's an exaggeration, but he owed a lot of the people who lived in the area money. Mm-hmm. So there we are. We, we've lost the trail of Abraham and Nancy. We do know, we do find them in 1870. So we know they're still living in Orange County in 1870. We know the general area where they're living. But you've got this big gap between 1852, when they were supposedly freed, 
1870. So I mentioned before about birth records. And the state of Virginia mandated in 1853 that everybody had to report the birth of any child, white or uh, uh, enslaved or a free black. They all had to be uh, reported. Not everybody did it, but they were supposed to. And as you might imagine, it was so that they could tax those people on those per capita uh, household members. So then they started in these records, in these birth records, you've got most of the time they name the child. Sometimes the child is unnamed when the report comes out. Uh, After early 1853, they did begin to give the mother's name. Now, she's an enslaved person, so most of the time it's only her first name. Then they gave the owner's name. Or if it's a white family, a white child, it's the father's name. So what we did was we took, we looked at the 1870 census, we recorded the children that were in that household and their birth years. Anybody who fell in a birth year between 1853 and 1865, we then went to the birth records because now we have a child's name and we have the mother's name, though we don't know who owns her or where Mm -hmm. she might have gone after 1852. And what we found was children of the correct names of the correct year of birth their mother was listed as Nancy and both of them were owned by the same man a man named Richard Cave who had a big plantation not too far from Montpelier so now we know who owns Nancy then we looked at personal property tax records And we find that in 1867 and 1868, Abraham Shepard is living at the cave place. We looked at the Freedmen's Bureau records, and in 1865 and 1866, there is a contract for a year's labor between Abraham Shepard and the cave family. And they provide housing for Abraham Shepard and his family. Well, armed with that new information, one of the other um, researchers at Montpelier went down to the Orange County Courthouse to look at the records for Richard Cave. And they found that in 1871, Abraham Shepard purchased land from Richard Cave, from the very plantation where Nancy was held, and probably Abraham, although we haven't, we haven't documented that Abraham was enslaved there. And so we've got more looking to do, but this was a huge find. And and so we know more now about Abraham and Nancy, and armed with that, we're going forward, hoping that we find a living descendant. And how right. great would that yes. be for them to be able to know that about their family? Yes, indeed. And, I mean, I like all of the different sources that you used to just track this family. But my question is, okay, so you found the land records. Did you find them? You found them in 1870. What about 80, 1880 and and on? Are they you just lost them to follow up? No, no, happened? no. We found what we what we do at that point because Abraham and and Nancy are getting older. Mm-hmm. We find them in 1880, but as you know, the 1890 census records were all burned up, so we don't have those. And after 1880, our Abraham and Nancy have gotten to the age where they pass away. Mm-hmm. So now mm-hmm. what we're looking for is their children. Their children, yes. So we start following one child, 
until that, and we, I think it's that family, although I, I always have to write things down because I can't keep it so much in my head. But I know that there's one of the families that I took two, two of the uh, children through to 1932, and now I'm working on, and they died there, and they died in uh-huh. 1932. So now uh-huh. I'm going forward. Uh, with another uh, uh, another sibling, and it's very tedious and and time consuming, but you do it enough, and you're going to you know hit pay dirt. One of the things that I want to look at now, since Abraham Shepherd owned land, what happened to that land? Did he yeah. go to one of the children? Did mm-hmm. he have a will? Um, all those things, of course, take lots of man hours. <laughs> right. And, and so although you're looking at, you know, you're trying to track um, Abraham and to find out what happened to uh, his descendants, how many projects like this are you working on? Or is he the only one? Oh, no. And Elizabeth should jump in here because... We have a number of, um, because of the research that uh, Montpelier has managed to accomplish, we have a number of names, both with given names and surnames. Uh, And those are the ones we're focused on because it's it's, um, to find somebody who doesn't have a surname at all is very challenging. Um, what right. can be well, done? Elizabeth, tell us about this because you know my question is: Well, how are you getting this out to the the community so that they even know that you're looking for them? Well, right. Well, um, we um, Zan and I—I'll say mostly Zan—have um, been going out um, to, to visit with churches around the community and to let people know that, you know, we are doing this work. There is a um, wonderfully active um, Orange County African-American Historical Society, and we've been working through them to get the word out. Um, we are, there. the, the, um, Zan writes a column for the, local newspaper in Culpeper, and that's been picked up a couple of times, you know, sort of all around in a variety of counties. So, you know, we've been, we've been, um, we've, and, you know, we're on this program, which, which we're very thrilled to be. So we're, you know, we're doing a variety of things to, to kind of get the word out um, for people that, you know, that are still in the, in the area. But we are well, open to any, to any suggestions for, you know, wider for getting the word out in a in a broader way. Mm-hmm. Bernice, mm-hmm. Um, yes. This gets this gets back to that networking that I was talking about earlier, and Elizabeth is is spot on there. We we'll go to any church that's willing to have us, and we talk about the project, and we give out we have handouts that uh, that have contain a lot of the names the surname, family names that we're looking for. Um, they, we, we've uh, spoken at a number of different kind of organizations, um, and and I do write for the Star Exponent, and now I write for the local Orange County paper, and that's that column is nothing but African-American history. So... The last, uh, well, this week's and the two prior, I wrote about Abraham Shepard and Nancy and um, told in the column, wrote everything that we had found and what we were still looking for. And then I post that on my Facebook. Um, but but we're, it takes a lot to get that get that out there. The other, one of the other things that we're doing is trying to make connections with different uh, families who have been doing their uh, own family research. And um, as anybody that does genealogy knows, uh, my last name is Nelson, but if I start doing family research, I may end up doing research on 
on six or seven different family names because over 200 years they've intermarried they you know there's there's lots of connections so when we find those folks um we work very hard to uh, uh, get them to allow us to have a look at their work um, so that there may be a clue in, in something they found. Maybe they weren't looking specifically for, for Abraham Shepherd, but the shepherds pop up in their, in their uh, material. Right, um, right. Do you find that the, that as you go around and you speak of your research and the information that you have that you're willing to share, that people are coming forward to talk to you, to to get more involved in this project? There's no question. They definitely are. We've, we've been able to um, connect with several different families, uh, who uh, who are doing their own research or who have done some research. One gentleman came up to me after a program in downtown Orange. Um, interestingly enough, it was sponsored by the Women's Diversity Forum. And I thought, wow, that, in Orange County, they've got a Women's Diversity Forum. I was so impressed. Anyway, the... Um, he told me about a collection that his aunt had put together of uh, family histories uh, that was housed in a museum in Washington, D.C. So one of the other researchers and I went up there and spent the, spent the afternoon looking through all that material. Uh, really significant, good, good information um, on several different families um, in in or- from Orange County, uh, so yes, that's people are coming forward. And um, Elizabeth, don't you think that the Juneteenth thing that we are we are uh, kind of co-hosting will help with that? Um, yes, we um, this this summer on um, June the eighteenth. Montpelier and the Orange County African American Historical Society and the Orange Art Center are co-hosting a Juneteenth celebration at Montpelier, and we're going to be um, sharing. We're going to have a lot of opportunity to be sharing in a very broad way with um, a lot of the work that we're doing, and we hope that people are going to come and um, enjoy the celebration, but also um, learn and share um, anything they might be able to share with us about their own families. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I want to ask you a question, Elizabeth, and mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard you use the term arc of citizenship. Can you explain yes. just what that means? Sure. Well, one of, so, you know, the, um, th- this is a part, this is a really special aspect of Montpelier because Montpelier has been, you know, a, 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 a location that was, you know, lived in, lived in by people has only been a museum for a very short part of its existence. It, it has some special um, attributes. So yes, we have, we have the big house where the Madison family lived and we are, we understand the landscape of slavery. But in addition on the Montpelier property, we also have a Freedman's farm. Um, And we have, where we tell the story of a family who we believe were enslaved at Montpelier. And then um, their names are George and Polly Gilmore. And after emancipation, they were able to acquire um, and build a a house and a farm for their family um, that, that, that we can use to talk about you know, the the aftermath of slavery, the movement from slavery to citizenship. Um, And then another aspect of African-American history that we can talk about at Montpelier is we also have on the property a, an early 20th century, I think about 1910 train station um, that was, became part of Montpelier when the DuPont family lived there after 1901 
and this train station retains its white and colored waiting rooms from the Jim Crow era, and it has been interpreted, um, you know, as a as an example of of Jim Crow. So what we what we can do at Montpelier is to talk about slavery, emancipation, about the kind of failure of Reconstruction in the Jim Crow era, and then we can take this, what we call this arc of citizenship, into the present and talk about the legacy of slavery in the present. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there, I can't think of another historic site um, really in this country where where you know such a such a conversation is possible, so we think that's a you know a very um, important part of what we do at Montpelier. Right, and and there's a comment coming out of the chat that arc of citizenship is an interesting term. <clears throat> right, I mean it. You know, we, we. I think what happens at a lot of museums where slavery is interpreted is that it all kind of ends either before emancipation or just after emancipation, you know, the stories, the story kind of stops, but, you know, we can sort of take the story after emancipation, you know, through the, through the, the, the Jim Crow into the civil rights era and then to the present. So, mm-hmm. um, right. 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 Well, I'm, yes, go ahead on. Well, all I was going to say is it flows well into us gathering the stories from descendants because they also have stories of the uh, from their ancestors of the Reconstruction period, and they have stories. A lot of living people have stories of Jim Crow, and when Elizabeth talks about the deep, the train depot being interpreted. There are stories in there that they've gathered from people who are living in the community today that remember what that yes. was like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. If you go to if you go to the train depot, you can hear oral histories of people who grew up. You know, most of them were children, but um, you know, who grew up and talk about their their recollections of 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 that time. Yes, yes. Well, this is quite interesting. So uh, I have a question coming out of the chat, and this, what is the best source to use to find Freedman Bureau land contracts? Okay. That's for Zan. Yeah, I mean, there are labor contracts in the Freedman Bureau for certain. Okay, what I would recommend is that they go on to familysearch.org and um and and then they have to search for Freedmen's Bureau records. Uh Family Search has a has an agreement with the National Archives and they have scanned in all the documents. They are now in the process of indexing them so that they are, will be searchable. Right now they're not searchable. You have to go through page by page by page. But they they will break a lot of it down into counties and, and what those uh, files contain. So that's, right. uh, that's what I would recommend. And uh, right. family search. Plus we also but, have uh, Angela Walton Raji has posted the link to mapping the Freedmen's Bureau.com. And by clicking that map, you can go in there and you will find the link to various parts of Virginia since the Virginia uh, Freedmen Bureau records are already digitized. Yes, they definitely are. Yes, so that's a, and that's a place. full of really good information. Really good excellent, information. Excellent information. Excellent. So we're getting close to the end of the show. And uh, from both of you, do you have any parting words you'd like to leave with the listeners tonight? Well, I well, don't know what Go ahead. <laughs> well, go. I would say if anyone <laughs> believes that they might have a family connection, to Montpelier or to Orange County, Virginia, um, to reach out to Bernice, who will then reach out to us so we can find you. 
Absolutely, and I would only add to that. I want to. I would like to throw out a few names, Bernice, if that's okay. Okay. Yes, please do. Okay. Yeah, in the Washington D.C. area, we would be particularly interested in Taylors, Stewarts. Um, the, those two are the primary families that we're looking for that we that that were in that area. Um, and then in the Orange County area, which they may have moved at some point to Pennsylvania or Ohio, or or may still be uh, know they have roots in Orange County, but it's the Shepherds, the Tollivers. Um, Elizabeth, is there anyone else really critical right now? From the Tollivers. That sounds good. Okay. And and that is not to exclude anyone who, as Elizabeth said, believes they have a connection either to Orange County or to Montpelier. Okay. So we want everybody, please spread the word. We're looking for the Taylors and the Stewarts and the Shepherds and the Tollivers. And yes. if you have additional names that you want to uh, share with us, please, please do that. Uh, also, uh, there's a comment coming out of the chat that you should put those names on AfroGenius.com, both the okay. mailing list and the Facebook page, so that individuals can know that you're looking for them. Oh, and thank you. That's great. Follow up because it's it's great if we can make the connections for those families, and especially since you have so much documentation that will help the family. But the family may also have documentation be, be to share with you. It'll help us exactly. Yes. Right. Right. Great so idea. I want to, yes, I want to thank both of you for coming on tonight and just sharing uh, information about Montpelier and about your work in Orange County. And, hey, let's keep the conversation going, everyone. Just keep it going. Well, before I close out the show tonight, I do have a quick infomercial that I'd like you all to listen to, and then we'll go to the closeout. Have you thought about a genealogy institute? to learn the right way to conduct research on black family history or genealogy? Are you stuck in where to go next for your own research or for a client? If so, then Maggie, the Teaching Institute is for you. Maggie, M-A-A-G-I, is the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute, now in its fourth year, and this year will unfold in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Maggie is the only multiple track institute for African-American genealogy methods. From July 12th to the 14th, Maggie will take place at the Genealogy Center in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Join the faculty and your colleagues for the Maggie experience that can change the trajectory of your work. That's Maggie, the Teaching Institute. For more information, visit the website at maagiinstitute.org. Okay, and so I want to thank you, Zan Nelson and Elizabeth Chu, for joining us tonight. And everyone, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also, please remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton-Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.genieberoots.com. Well, I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Zian.
Good night, Elizabeth. Good night. Good night.